Chapter One of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter One The Coming of John Dean. Straight along, down the steps, bear to the left, and you'll find the Admiralty on the opposite side of the way. John Dean thanked the policeman, gave the cigar in his mouth a twist with his tongue, and walked along Lower Regent Street towards Waterloo Place. At the bottom of the Duke of York's steps, he crossed the road, turned to the left, and paused. Nowhere could he see an entrance sufficiently impressive to suggest the Admiralty. Just ahead was a dingy and unpretentious doorway, with a policeman standing outside. But that, he decided, could not be the entrance to the Admiralty. As he gazed at it, a fair-haired girl came out of the doorway and walked towards him. "'Excuse me,' said John Dean, lifting his hat. "'But is that the Admiralty you've just come out of?' There was almost an imperceptible stiffening in the girl's demeanor but a glance at the homely figure of John Dean, with its ill-made clothes, reassured her. "'Yes, that is the Admiralty,' she replied gravely, in a voice that caused John Dean momentarily to forget the Admiralty and all its works. "'Much obliged,' he said, again lifting his hat as she walked away. But, instead of continuing on his way, John Dean stood watching the girl until she disappeared up the Duke of York's steps. Then, once more twirling his cigar in his mouth and hunching his shoulders, he walked towards the doorway she had indicated. "'This the Admiralty?' he inquired of the policeman. "'Yes, sir,' was the reply. "'Did you want to see anyone?' John Dean looked at the man in surprise. "'Why should I be here if I didn't?' he asked. "'I want to see the First Lord.' The man's manner underwent a change. "'If you'll step inside, sir, you'll see an attendant.' John Dean stepped inside and repeated his request, this time to a frock-coated attendant. "'Have you an appointment?' inquired the man. "'No,' responded John Dean indifferently. The attendant hesitated. It was not customary for unknown callers to demand to see the First Lord without an appointment." After a momentary pause, the man indicated a desk on which lay some printed slips. "'Will you please fill in your name, sir, and state your business?' "'State my business!' exclaimed John Dean. "'Not on your life!' "'I'm afraid,' began the man. "'Never mind what you're afraid of,' said John Dean. "'Just you take my name up to the First Lord. Here, I'll write it down.' Seizing a pen, he wrote his name. "'John Dean of Toronto.' and then underneath, I've come three thousand miles to tell you something. Perhaps it's worth three minutes of your time to listen. There, take that up, and I'll wait, he said. The attendant read the message, then, beckoning to another frock-coated servitor, he handed him the paper, at the same time whispering some instructions. John Dean looked about him with interest. He was frankly disappointed. He had conceived the administrative buildings of the greatest navy in the world as something grand and impressive. Yet here was a British admiralty with an entrance that would compare unfavorably with the second-rate hotel in Toronto. 
He turned suddenly and almost ran into a shifty-eyed little man in a grey tweed suit who had entered the Admiralty a moment after him. The man apologized profusely as John Dene eyed him grimly. He had become aware of the man's interest in his colloquy with the attendant, and of the way in which he had endeavoured to catch sight of what was written on the slip of paper. John Dene proceeded to stride up and down with short, jerky steps, twirling his unlit cigar round in his mouth. "'Excuse me, sir,' said the attendant, approaching, "'but smoking is not permitted.' "'That's so,' remarked John Dene without interest, as he continued to roll his cigar in his mouth. "'Your cigar, sir,' continued the man. "'It's out,' John Dene still continued to look about him. The attendant retired nonplussed. The rule specifically referred to smoking, not to carrying unlit cigars in the mouth. At the end of five minutes, the attendant who had taken up John Dene's name returned and whispered to the doorkeeper. "'If you will follow the attendant, sir, he will take you to see Sir Leicester's secretary, Mr. Blair.' "'Mr.' began John Dene, then, breaking off, he followed the man up the stairs and along a corridor, at the end of which another frock-coated man appeared from a room with a small glass door. He, in turn, took charge of the visitor, having received his whispered instructions from the second attendant. John Dene was then shown into a large room with a central table, and requested to take a seat. He was still engaged in gazing about him when a door at the further end of the room opened, and there entered a fair man with an obvious stoop, a monocle, a heavy drooping moustache, and the nose of a duke in a novelette. "'Mr. John Dean?' he asked, looking at the slip of paper in his hand. "'Sure,' was the response, as John Dean continued to twirl the cigar in his mouth, with him always a sign either of thought or of irritation." "'You wish to see the First Lord?' continued the fair man. "'I am his secretary. Will you give me some idea of your business?' "'No, I won't,' was the blunt response. Mr. Blair was momentarily disconcerted by the uncompromising nature of the retort, but quickly recovered himself. "'I am afraid Sir Leicester is very busy this morning,' he said diplomatically. "'If you—' "'Look here,' interrupted John Dene. "'I've come three thousand miles to tell him something. "'If he hasn't time to listen, then I'll not waste my time. "'But before you decide to send me about my business, "'you just ring up the ancient general for Kanda "'and ask who John Dene of Toronto is. "'Maybe you'll learn something.' "'But you will not give me some idea,' began the secretary. "'No, I won't,' was the obstinate reply. "'Here!' he cried with sudden inspiration. Give me some paper and a pen, and I'll write a note. Mr. Blair sighed his relief. He was a man of peace. He quickly supplied the caller's demands. Slowly, he indicted his letter, then, taking a case from his pocket, he extracted an envelope which he enclosed with the letter in another envelope, and finally addressed it to the First Lord of the Admiralty. Give him this, he said, turning to Mr. Blair, and say I'm in a hurry. Nothing but a long line of ancestors prevented Mr. Blair from gasping. Instead, he took the note with a diplomatic smile. "'You wouldn't do for Toronto,' muttered John Dene, as the First Lord's private secretary left the room. Two minutes later, he returned. "'Sir Leicester will see you, Mr. Dean,' he said with a smile. "'Will you come this way?' "'I'm sorry if—' 
"'Don't be sorry,' said John Dean patiently. "'You're just doing your job as best you can.' Whilst John Dean was being led by Mr. Blair to the First Lord's private room, Sir Lyster was re-reading the astonishing note that had been sent in to him, which ran, "'Dear Sir, I am John Dean of Toronto. I have come three thousand miles to tell you how to stop the German U-boats. If I do not succeed, you can give the enclosed fifty thousand pounds to the Red Cross.' Yours faithfully, John Dean. Sir Leicester Grain was a man for whom tradition had its uses, but he never allowed it to dictate to him. The letter that had just been brought in was, he decided, written by a man of strong individuality, and the amazing offer it contained, to forfeit fifty thousand pounds, impressed him. These were strange and strenuous days, when every suggestion or invention must be examined and deliberated upon sir leicester grain prided himself upon his open-mindedness incidentally he had a wholesome fear of questions being asked in the house as the door opened he rose and held out his hand sir leicester always assumed a democratic air as a matter of political expediency mr dean he murmured as he motioned his visitor to a seat pleased to meet you said john dean as he shook hands and then took the seat indicated "'Sorry to blow in on you like this,' he continued, "'but my business is important, and I've come three thousand miles about it.' "'So I understand,' said Sir Leicester quietly. John Dean looked at him, and in that look summed him up as he had previously summed up his secretary. "'You wouldn't do for Toronto,' was his unuttered verdict. John Dean placed a man irrevocably by determining whether or not he would do for Toronto. First of all,' said Sir Leicester, I think I will return this, handing to John Dean the envelope containing the check for fifty thousand pounds. I thought it would tickle you some, he remarked grimly as he replaced the check in his pocketbook, but I'll cash in if I don't make good, he added. You know anything about submarines? he demanded. Directness was John Dean's outstanding characteristic. Uh, began the First Lord. You don't, announced John Dean with conviction. I'm afraid began Sir Leicester. Then you'd better send for someone who does, was the uncompromising rejoinder. Sir Leicester looked at his visitor in surprise, hesitated a moment, then, pressing a button, said, as Mr. Blair appeared, Will you ask Admiral Hayworth to come here immediately? Mr. Blair retired. Admiral Hayworth, explained Sir Leicester, is the Admiralty Authority on Submarines. John Dean nodded. There was a pause. "'Wouldn't you like to ring up the Agent General for Canada and find out who I am?' suggested John Dean. "'I don't think that is necessary, Mr. Dean,' was the reply. "'We will hear what you have to say first. "'Ha! Hayworth!' as the Admiral entered. "'This is Mr. John Dean of Toronto, who has come to tell us something about a discovery of his.' Admiral Hayworth, a little bald-headed man with beetling brows and a humorous mouth, took the hand held out to him. "'Pleased to meet you,' said John Dean. Then, without a pause, he continued, "'I want your promise that this is all between us three, that you won't go and breeze it about.' He looked from Sir Leicester to Admiral Hayworth. Sir Leicester bowed. Admiral Hayworth said, "'Certainly.' "'Now,' said John Dean, turning to the Admiral, "'what's the greatest difficulty you're up against in submarine warfare?' "'Well,' began Admiral Hayworth, "'there are several. For instance,' 
"'There's only one that matters,' broke in John Dean. "'Your boats are blind when submerged beyond the depth of their periscopes. "'That so?' The Admiral nodded. "'Well,' continued John Dean, "'I want you to understand I'm not asking a red cent from anybody, "'and I won't accept one. "'What I'm going to tell you about has already cost me well over a million dollars, "'and if you look at me, you'll see I'm not the man to put a million dollars "'into patent flycatchers or boots guaranteed to button themselves.' "'Sir Leicester and the Admiral exchanged puzzled glances, but said nothing. "'Suppose the Germans were able to sink a ship without even showing their periscopes.' John Dean looked directly at the Admiral. "'It would place us in a very precarious position,' was the grave reply. "'Oh, shucks!' cried John Dean in disgust. "'It would queer the whole outfit. You soldiers and sailors can never see beyond your own particular backyards. It would mighty soon finish the war.' He almost shouted the words in the emphasis he gave them. "'It would mean that troops couldn't be brought from America.' It would mean that supplies couldn't be brought over here. It would mean good-bye to the whole sunflower patch. Do you get me? He looked from Sir Leicester to the Admiral. I think, said Sir Leicester, that perhaps you exaggerate a lit— I don't, said John Dean. I know what I'm talking about. Now, why is the submarine blind? Because, he answered his own question, no one has ever overcome the difficulty of the density of water. I have. Admiral Hayworth started visibly, and Sir Leicester bent forward eagerly. You have, cried Admiral Hayworth. Sure, was a self-complacent reply. I've got a boat fitted with an apparatus that'll sink any ship that comes along, and she needn't show her periscope to do it, either. What's more, she can see underwater. If I don't deliver the goods— John Dean rummaged in his pocket once more and produced the envelope containing the check. Here's fifty thousand pounds you can give to the Red Cross. Sir Leicester and Admiral Hayworth gazed at each other wordless. John Dean sat back in his chair and chewed the end of his cigar. Sir Leicester fumbled for his eyeglass, and when he had found it, stuck it in his eye and gazed at John Dean as if he had been some marvelous being from another world. The Admiral said nothing, and did nothing. He was visualizing the possibilities arising out of such a discovery. It was John Dean who broke in upon their thoughts. "'The Huns have got it coming,' he remarked grimly. "'But,' began Admiral Hayworth. "'Listen,' said John Dean. "'I'm an electrical engineer. I'm worth more millions than you've got toes. I saw that underwater the submarine is only a blind fish with a sting in its tail. Give it eyes, and it becomes a real factor underwater.' He paused, revolving his cigar in his mouth. His listeners nodded eagerly. Well, he continued, I set to work to give her eyes. On the St. Lawrence River, just below Quebec, I've got a submarine that can see. Her searchlights— But how have you done it? broke in the Admiral. That, remarked John Dean dryly, is my funeral. We must put this before the Inventions Board, said Sir Leicester. Let me see this. It's Friday. Can you be here on Tuesday, Mr. Dean? No. Sir Leicester started at the decision in John Dean's tone. Would Wednesday— Look here, broke in John Dean. I come from Toronto, and in Canada, when we've got a good thing, we freeze on to it. You've got to decide this thing within twenty-four hours, yes or no. 
Unless I cable to my agent in Washington by noon tomorrow, he'll make the same offer I've made you to the States, and they'll be that eager to say, yep, that they'll swallow their gum. But, Mr. Dean, began Sir Lyster, I've been in this country fourteen hours, proceeded John Dean calmly, and I can see that you all want gingering up. Why the hell can't you decide on a thing at once, when you've got everything before you? If a man offers you a pedigree pup for nothing, and you want a pedigree pup, wouldn't you just hold out your hand? John Dean looked from one to the other. But this is not exactly a matter of a pedigree pup, suggested Admiral Hayworth diplomatically. It's a matter of, uh, I see you haven't got me, said John Dean, with the air of a patient schoolmaster with a stupid pupil. You, he addressed himself in particular to Sir Lyster, have said in public that the most difficult spot in connection with the submarine trouble is between the Shetlands and the Norwegian coast. You can't help the U-boats slipping through submerged. Suppose the destroyer, that's the name of my boat, is sort of hanging around here, with eyes, and some other little thing she's got. What then? Both Sir Lyster and I appreciate all you say, said the Admiral, but... Well, we are a little old-fashioned, perhaps, in our methods here. He smiled deprecatingly. Well, said John Dean, rising, you lose the odd trick, that's all. And, he added significantly, as he took a step towards the door, when it all comes out, you'll lose your jobs, too. Really, Mr. Dean, protested Sir Lyster, flushing slightly. John Dean swung round on his heel. If you'd spent three years of your life and over a million dollars on a boat, and come three thousand miles to offer it to someone for nothing, and were told to wait till God knows which day what week, well, you'd be rattled too. In Toronto we size up a man before he's had time to say he's pleased to meet us, and we'd buy a mountain quicker than you'd ask your neighbor to pass the marmalade at breakfast. Whilst John Dean was speaking, Sir Lyster had been revolving the matter swiftly in his mind. He was impressed by his visitor's fearlessness. A self-made man himself, he admired independence and freedom of speech in others. He was not oblivious to the truth of John Dean's hint of what would happen if another nation, even an allied nation, were to acquire a valuable invention that had been declined by Great Britain. He remembered the Fokker scandal. He decided to temporize. If continued John Dean, I was asking for money, I'd understand, but I won't take a red cent, and more than that, I go bail to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars that I deliver the goods. He strode up and down the room, twirling his cigar and flinging his short, sharp sentences at the two men, who, to his mind, stood as barriers to an allied triumph. If you will sit down, Mr. Dean, said Sir Lyster suavely, I'll explain. John Dean hesitated for a moment, then humped himself into a chair, gazing moodily before him. "'We quite appreciate your, uh, patriotism and public-spiritedness in—' "'Here, cut it out,' broke in John Dean. "'Do you want the destroyer, or don't you?' Sir Lyster recoiled as if he had been struck. He had been first lord too short a time for the guilt to be worn off his dignity— Seeing his chief about to reply in a way that he suspected might end the interview, Admiral Hayworth interposed. May I suggest that under the circumstances we consult Mr. Llewellyn John? That's bully, broke in John Dean without giving Sir Lyster a chance of replying. They say he's got pep. 
Bowing to the inevitable, Sir Lyster picked up the telephone receiver. "'Get me through to the Prime Minister,' he said. The three men waited in silence for the response. As the bell rang, Sir Lyster swiftly raised the receiver to his ear. "'Yes, the Prime Minister, Sir Lyster Grain-speaking.' There was a pause. "'Grain-speaking, yes. Can I come round with Admiral Hayworth and an, uh, inventor? It's very important.' He listened for a moment, then added, "'Yes, we'll come at once.' "'Now, Mr. Dean,' said Sir Lyster, as he rose and picked up his hat, "'I hope we shall be able to—' uh... He did not finish the sentence, but led the way to the door. The three men walked across the horse guard's quadrangle towards Downing Street. The only words uttered were when Sir Lyster asked John Dean if he had seen the pelicans. John Dean looked at him in amazement. He had heard that in British official circles it was considered bad taste to discuss the war except officially, and he decided that he was now discovering what was really the matter with the British Empire. As the trio crossed the road to mount the steps leading to Downing Street, the girl passed of whom John Dean had asked the way. Her eyes widened slightly as she recognized John Dean's two companions. They widened still more when John Dean lifted his hat followed a second later by Sir Lyster, whilst Admiral Hayworth saluted. In her surprise, she nearly ran into a little shifty-eyed man in a grey suit, who, with an elaborate flourish of his hat, hastened to apologize for her carelessness. "'That's the girl who showed me the way to your back door,' John Dean announced nonchalantly. Sir Lyster exchanged a rapid glance with the Admiral. "'If I was running this show,' continued John Dean, "'I'd get that door enlarged a bit and splash some paint about.' And for the first time since they had met, John Dean smiled up at Sir Lyster, a smile that entirely changed the somber cast of his features. On arriving at number 110 Downing Street, the three callers were conducted straight into Mr. Llewellyn John's room. As they entered, he rose quickly from his table, littered with papers, and, with a smile, greeted his colleagues. Sir Lyster then introduced John Dean. Mr. Llewellyn John grasped John Dean's hand, and, turning on him that bewilderingly sunny smile which Mr. Chappeldale had once said ought in itself to win the war. "'Sit down, Mr. Dean,' said Mr. Llewellyn John, indicating a chair. "'It's always a pleasure to meet anyone from Canada.' "'What should we have done without you Canadians?' he murmured half to himself. "'Mr. Dean tells us that he has solved the submarine problem,' said Sir Lyster, as he and Admiral Hayworth seated themselves. Instantly, Mr. Llewellyn John became alert. The social smile vanished from his features, giving place to the look of a keen-witted Celt, eager to pounce upon something that would further his schemes. He turned to John Dean interrogatingly. "'Perhaps Mr. Dean will explain,' suggested Sir Lyster. "'Sure,' said John Dean. "'Your submarine isn't a submarine at all. It's a submersible. Underwater it's useless, because it can't see. As well call a seal a fish. A submarine must be able to fight underwater, and until it can, it won't be any more a submarine than I'm a toony fish.' Mr. Llewellyn John nodded in eager acquiescence. I've spent over a million dollars, and now I've got a boat that can see underwater and fight underwater and do a lot of other fancy tricks. Mr. Llewellyn John sprang to his feet. You have. Tell me, where is it? This is wonderful, wonderful. 
It takes us a year forward. It's on the St. Lawrence River, just below Quebec, explained John Dean. And how long will it take to construct, say, a hundred? asked Mr. Llewellyn John eagerly, dropping back into his chair. Longer than any of us are going to live, replied John Dean grimly. Mr. Llewellyn John looked at his visitor in surprise. Sir Lyster and the Admiral exchanged meaning glances. The Prime Minister was experiencing what in Toronto were known as John's snags. But if you made one, began Mr. Llewellyn John. There's only going to be one, announced John Dean grimly. But you can butt like a he-goat, announced John Dean. Still, there'll be only our destroyer. Sir Leicester smiled inwardly. His bruised dignity was recovering at the sight of the surprised look on the face of the Prime Minister at John Dean's comparison. Perhaps Mr. Dean will explain to us the difficulties, insinuated Sir Leicester. Sure, said John Dean, then turning to Admiral Hayworth. What would happen if Germany got a submarine that could see and do fancy stunts, he demanded. It might embarrass, began the Admiral. Shucks, cried John Dean, it would bust us up. What about the American transports, food ships, munitions, and the rest of it? They'd be attacked all along the 3,000 miles route, and would go down like a neck oil on a permit night. You get me? Suddenly, Mr. Llewellyn John struck the table with his fist. "'You're right, Mr. Dean,' he cried. "'They might capture one and copy it. "'You remember the Gothas?' he added, turning to Sir Leicester. "'Sure,' was John Dean's laconic reply. "'But how can we be sure they will not capture the destroyer?' inquired Sir Leicester. "'Because there'll be John Dean and a hundred weight of high explosive on board,' said John Dean dryly as he chewed at the end of his cigar. "'Then you propose,' began Admiral Hayworth. I'll put you wise. This is my offer. I'm willing to send U-boats to Mary Hell, but only on my own terms. I won't take a cent for my boat or anything else. It's my funeral. The destroyer is now in Canada, with German spies buzzing around like flies over a dead rat. If you agree, I'll cable to my boys to bring the destroyer, and it won't be done without some fancy shooting. I take it. You turning to Admiral Hayworth, will appoint an officer, two if you like, to come aboard and count the bag. I'll supply the crew, and you'll give me a commander's commission in the Navy. Now, is it a deal? But, began Sir Leicester. You make me tired, said John Dean wearily. Is it or is it not a deal? He inquired of Mr. Llewellyn John. With an effort, the Prime Minister seemed to gather himself together. He found the pace a little breathless, even for him. "'I think it might be arranged, Grain,' he said tactfully. "'Mr. Dean knows his own invention, and we might enroll his crew in the Navy. What do you think?' Mr. Llewellyn John abounded intact. "'I take it that you understand navigation, Mr. Dean,' ventured the Admiral. "'Sure,' was the reply. "'You come a trip with me, and I'll show you navigation that'll make your hair stand on end. Sorry!' he added a moment after, observing that Admiral Hayworth was almost aggressively bald. "'That's all right,' laughed the Admiral. "'They call me the Coot.' "'Well, is it a deal?' demanded John Dean, rising. "'It is,' said Mr. Llewellyn John. "'And a splendid deal for the British Empire, Mr. Dean,' he added, holding out his hand. "'It's a great privilege to meet a patriot such as you. 
Sir Leicester and Admiral Hayworth will settle all details to your entire satisfaction. If they do for me, I want you to give the command to Blake, then to Quinton, and so on, only to my own boys. Is that agreed? Do for you, queried Mr. Llewellyn John. Huns, they're after me every hour of the day. There was a little chap even in your own building. We really must intern these Germans, began Mr. Llewellyn John. "'You're barking up the wrong tree over here,' said John Dean, with conviction. "'You think a German spy's got a square head and says, "'Ach Himmel and Jawohl on streetcars. "'It's the neutrals, mostly, and sometimes the British,' he added under his breath. "'In any case, you will, I am sure, find that Sir Leicester will do whatever you want,' "'said Mr. Llewellyn John, as they walked towards the door.' For the second time that morning, John Dean smiled as he left number 110 Downing Street with Sir Leicester and Admiral Hayworth, whilst Mr. Llewellyn John rang up the chief of Department Z. End of chapter 1 Recording by William Tomko.